0: Hello, and welcome to the BNP Paribas Asset Management Talking Heads podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jenny Yu, co-head of our inflation team. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks for joining me.
1: Hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here.
0: So, it's somewhat surprising or or feels a bit odd to be talking about inflation when, for so many years, it just really wasn't a topic that was terribly pertinent to investors, but uh, how how times have changed. And we're actually at the point now where people are asking, you know, have we actually had a regime shift from that low inflation world that we seem to be in for, for a very long time uh, to one now when, where people, where investors have serious concerns, not only about inflation in the short term, but about potentially higher levels of sustained inflation for a while. And on one hand, you could potentially think, well, this is only going to be transitory, as the central bankers infamously said. Or on the other hand, there are reasons to think this actually could be more sustained. So I guess my first question for you then, Jenny, is has the regime really shifted? Are we going back to a low low-flation world or is this the latest version of that 70s show?
1: Daniel, I think this is a really great question. Um, this is the ongoing debate that we have been having, whether inflation is simply taking longer to revert back to the pre-pandemic levels, or if we are really progressing to a different inflation regime. So I think it's worth to kind of look back in the past 10 years when we think about after the great financial crisis, um, there were unprecedented amounts of quantitative easing uh, being injected to the economy, but then that didn't really generate any inflation. Um, And despite the exceptionally accommodative monetary policy, disinflationary impacts uh, from the balance sheet recession, along with many of the secular uh, disinflationary forces, which I'm sure um, we're all very familiar with by now, have kept inflation rates actually below the central bank's target. But I think it's also very important to look back to the longer history and when you do that, you would realize that we have in fact been living in an almost unbroken period of rising prices since the Second World War. Um, and history also suggested that inflationary and disinflationary cycles actually wax and wane over time and the duration of those cycles can also vary. Historical experiences also have taught us that determined reflation policy uh, can really de- defeat de- Just inflationary shocks. Instead, we think that the world is more likely uh, progressing to a different inflation regime. In fact, many economists and market commentators have drawn many parallels between the current period and also um, the great inflation regime. The great inflation regime being the period when inflation began ratcheting up in the mid 1960s and peaked at about 14% in 1980. And when we look at the external environments, there are some similarities as well. In the 1970s, the global economy saw two disruptive energy crises, uh, including the oil embargo in 1973 to 74, as well as the Iranian revolution in 1979, which both resulted in a significant decline in oil supply. Skyrocketing energy prices generated substantial cost push inflation which in turn was passed through the the production chain, leading to higher retail prices. And when we look at today, similarly, we face many supply shocks, uh, disruption. Uh, Supply chain disruption, limiting the availability of goods, labor market shortages in some countries, and geopolitical events that is uh, really threatening um, to disrupt the supply of oil and gas. So in today's situation, businesses are already passing on the higher input costs to their customers, and there are more evidence of second order effects from higher energy prices. So the great inflation period ended with inflation hitting a peak of more than 14% in 1980, and the Federal Reserve Chairman, Paul Volcker, took very aggressive policy steps to rein in inflation. With the benefit of hindsight, the lesson from the 1970s on inflation was that with an economy already primed by very accommodated fiscal and monetary policies, successive transitory inflationary shocks can actually lead to an anchoring of inflation expectations. But to the policymakers facing inflation uncertainty at that time, that conclusion was not obvious. And I think policymakers today are facing a very similar dilemma. On the one hand, tighter monetary policy will not help to address the root cause of the supply shortages. It could actually make things worse by undermining the economic recovery. On the other hand, leaving monetary policy to lose would also risk inflation expectations becoming unanchored.
0: So at the beginning, Jenny, you talked about some of the disinflationary factors that we're all quite familiar with probably at this point that uh, globalization uh, had led to a fall in prices, China's accession to the WTO, uh, demographics, low growth. Now some of these may be changing. What are the factors that you think are likely to drive longer-term inflationary pressures now?
1: Thank you, Daniel. So uh, when we think about the longer-term drivers for inflation, I think many of the disinflationary factors are actually turning to become inflationary. First of all, we talk about the recession after the financial crisis and how um, the high high level of debt, demographics, and globalization um, were also the secular forces keeping inflation quite low. But then um, these factors are changing. Uh, First of all, when we focus on the high level of public debt, there are a very limited number of ways to reduce the debt burden, and the least painful way is actually through inflation. So the higher level of public debt actually incentivize policymakers to have a higher tolerance for inflation so that the real stock of debt can be um, reduced over time through financial repression, where inflation will be effectively a tax on investors. When we look at demographics, um, this is also changing. In, as you mentioned, in the decades following the ascension of China into WTO, We have seen goods inflation plunging in developed economies thanks to the many uh, millions of workers joining the global manufacturing engine. But in recent years, not only developed economies are seeing an aging population, China is also seeing a demographic reversal with its working age population set to decline. As more of the global population switches from being net producers to net consumers, Competition for productive workers will increase and wages in turn should also increase. Similarly, as more people move from being net savers into the this, this saving phase and start to consume more services, global demographics could turn from being inflationary to inflationary. And then there's this topic about globalization Governments are recognizing that there are a number of sectors, including medical goods, vaccine production, um, and now also energy, particularly given what's going on in the geopolitical space, um, that these sectors have a national security importance and require a degree of domestic self-sufficiency and protection. Some businesses are already rethinking about their efficiency-focused, just-in-time supply chain model in order to incorporate uh, some just-in-case considerations by improving the responsiveness and the resilience of their supply chains. So apart from those three factors, I think uh, in today's environment, we should also think about uh, inequality and the green energy transition as some of the drivers for longer-term and higher inflation. When it comes to inequality, actually, um, Inequality in its nature is disinflationary because the rich have higher propensity to save while the poor have higher propensity to spend. Inequality was already on a worrying widening trend prior to the pandemic and the COVID-19 situation has exacerbated the problem because the negative economic impacts uh, were being felt more severely by the lower income sector. This paradoxically brought higher consciousness of the inequality problem which in turn forced a political consensus across the spectrum on the need to combat the increasing income gap and uh, to drive political demands for redistributive fiscal policy and higher wages. And then on green transition, it is also one of the potential catalysts for higher inflation. The pandemic is seen as a prelude to the disasters that climate crisis can bring to the global communities. And as a warning that um, stress the urgency of our battle against climate change. In order to meet the goal of limiting carbon emission, a measurable rise in carbon prices will be needed to accelerate the transition and to disincentivize new investment in fossil fuel energy production. Now, it's important to know that in the longer term, higher dependence on renewable energy should be disinflationary because the marginal cost of production of uh, renewable energy is is pretty low. However, during the transitional phase, a rush to build renewable energy production could be quite costly. And in addition, the supply of renewable energy can be unpredictable uh, because the storage of these energy is still in its infancy phase. So intermittent fallbacks to traditional energy sources Uh, whose supply capacity has already been declining uh, could lead to energy shortages, resulting in higher and unstable energy prices. Uh, And these are all quite uh, strong inflationary forces uh, for for the years to come.
0: I think you've made a pretty convincing case that the outlook is for higher inflation in the years ahead. Of course, that raises the question, what should investors do about that? What are the measures they can take? What kind of investments should they look for to protect their f- portfolios against inflation risks
1: yeah indeed as the case for um, for an inflation revival has grown stronger and inflation uncertainty remains high it has become increasingly important for investors to manage inflation risks in their portfolio simply because inflation erodes the purchasing power of the portfolio's value and can be particularly detrimental to investors who rely on the cash flows generated from fixed income as a classes. It's also important to note that a move to a sustained path of inflation, even at only moderately higher levels, represents a significant change from the disinflationary environment over the last 10 years. When we look back in the past decade, with structurally low inflation, a typical investor with a mix of fixed income and equity investments did not really have to worry much about hedging inflation risks. And that's because equities and fixed income assets exhibited a negative correlation providing very good diversification benefits. However, equities and fixed income perform less well in periods of higher and rising inflation. Rising prices can shrink profit margins and with inflation already going up and bond yields still close to their historical lows, fixed income and equities can perform poorly and become positively correlated. Therefore, unexpected inflation presents a risk to the performance of a traditional stock and bond portfolio. And investors should really consider incorporating inflation-sensitive asset classes into their allocations as a strategy to improve the portfolio's resilience against inflation risks. Now, there are many different categories of inflation-sensitive asset classes. And each exhibits different degree of protection against inflation over different investment horizons. For investor looking for fixed income solutions to hedge against inflation, uh, inflationary bonds are very important building blocks. In general terms, inflationary bonds are fixed income instrument whose coupon and principal get uprated in line with the referencing inflation index. Now, by contrast, the coupons of conventional fixed income Um, Securities are fixed at a nominal rate, and the final principal repayment amounts stay constant. So returns from inflation and bonds, therefore, consist of both a realized inflation component and a real duration component. For the duration components, repricing of real yields is instantaneous and often dominates short-term results. So as such, on a standalone basis, Inflationing bonds can be poor uh, short-term inflation hedges when compared to other inflation-sensitive asset classes like commodities, particularly in today's scenario where interest rates are likely to continue to go higher. However, when we look at the longer term, inflationing bonds held to maturity will compensate for realized inflation as it occurs over the life of the bond through the inflation accreting process. Now, the inflation accruiting process is a feature that is absent in traditional nominal securities. So from a portfolio context, swapping out nominal bonds for inflationing bonds do provide a robust protection against inflation over the longer term. And also similar to nominal bonds as well, the real duration components um, provide diversification benefits against equities in an economic downturn.
0: Well, that's all we have time for today. If you'd like more information, reach out to your BNP Paribas Asset Management contact or check out our Investors Corner blog. For listeners who have devices with Alexa, you can ask Alexa to enable Investment Insights or search for Investment Insights on Amazon under the category Alexa Skills. My thanks to Jenny for sharing her insights. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you, Daniel. We hope you stay safe and take care.